If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans, Romans 14, beginning in verse 17. I just want to say before we read, there's a lot in uh, books about churches and church growth and what happens on a Sunday morning that go on and on about the removal of distractions. I don't agree with much of what is said, and I'll tell you why. You hear people say this all the time, well, when you come to this room, you've got to leave everything else out the door, right, so that you can come and really listen. I think there's a problem with that because it presents the idea that the Bible doesn't directly address those things that would demand your attention and your heart. That's what we claim is going on here. It's not just the high and mighty spiritual thoughts that we're supposed to have, the anxieties that wait for you outside this door, the demands of your life that wait for you outside this door, your fears and frustrations. That is exactly what this book claims to address. So I want you to have them. I want you to be aware of them and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that it can interact with those things. We're not just heads on a stick. We have lives. And the Bible claims to have authority in every area of your life. So, let's look at Romans 14. You'll recognize that this is not uh, Hebrews. Romans 14, beginning in verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. You might ask me, well, why'd you choose this text? What? What are we doing here? Well, there are several reasons. This is what I would call the state of the pulpit 2020. We did this last year, the first Sunday of the year. We talked about uh, different things that we were going to set as priorities as a church. And I think this passage in particular summarizes uh, the two areas of emphasis that we will be, Lord willing, adding to those. So why this text? Well, so many will do. Um, But we've already preached on most of them. (laughs) Hebrews 3.13, hopefully you all have that memorized. Colossians 3.16, which I've referenced already. And then 1 Corinthians 14.12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So all of those texts together and many others get at the heart of what we're talking about today. So what we're doing is we're going to this passage in Romans to give us biblical clarity and definition surrounding two ideas. So the three, the three ideas or headings that I gave you last year were the priority of the Word of God, the priority of prayer, and an emphasis on equipping you for the work of ministry. There were Bible verses for each of those. We spent a lot of time talking about them. And there are several different ways that we sought to do each of those. This year, I'm giving us two additional words or areas of emphasis to focus on. And they come from this text. I'll just tell you 
what they are up front so that you can be thinking about them as we go through this. The first would be unity. Unity in the body of Christ. And the second would be discipleship. Unity and discipleship. And I would say that they're kind of under the equipping heading, or, but you could really put them under all three. But these are two areas of focus that I think we really need as a family. So let's get into the text and see how these are borne out. So what's the context of this passage? Paul is obviously writing to the church in Rome, and he's resolving a conflict. We won't get into the nitty-gritty of the conflict, but basically it's a disagreement about eating and drinking. What Christians can eat, what they can't eat. What Christians can drink and what they can't drink. And he goes through and gives an excellent defense for a unifying message of esteeming your brother enough, believing that what Jesus claims to have done in making him his child, that should make you want to put others' needs in front of your own. And here, this, these verses that I just read are how he summarizes his argument. So this is the conclusion of how he's appealing to the church in Rome to live and to resolve conflict. And he begins by saying, for the kingdom of God, or because the kingdom of God. So what he's doing is taking, he's taking the disagreement or the debate out of the realm of personal preference, and he's putting it into the realm of the kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God. And the summons to all of us, and just like it was for Paul to his hearers, is to remember the kingdom of God. Remember it. We are not gathering to increase our own kingdoms. We're not involved in our individual stories while we're cobbled together in a church. It's not even about the story or the kingdom of North Star or the Southern Baptists. It's about the kingdom of God. We ought not seek our own glory or recognition or even success or notoriety or even legacy. But rather, we ought to seek the kingdom, the glory of the King, to make Jesus famous, to strive for the advance of the gospel here in our lives, in this room. We should strive and insist that people take note of the gospel and to build up the church. It's about the kingdom. Everything else is going to crumble and burn. You realize that. The kingdom of God has foundations that are unshakable. Everything else, and this is the flavor of the text that says that our works in our lives will be tested by fire. Take care how you build on the foundation of Christ because if it's with straw and stubble and wood, it's just going to burn. The only thing that endures is the things done for the kingdom. Everything other than the kingdom is a distraction and might just be an idol for you. And it's at least being used by the enemy to make sure you don't devote yourself to the health and thriving of the church like the apostles did. So, bring all those ideas together. We've, we've preached about the kingdom. We've talked about it many different weeks. 
Bring all those ideas together. The beautiful, eternal, unshakable kingdom of God. Bring all of those up in your mind. And let those images fill your heart. That's what we seek. And it's the only reason we ought to exist as a church. To seek the kingdom of God. And then he clarifies. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. So in response to this disagreement that the church in Rome was having, he says, the kingdom isn't really about that. You've got your focus on the wrong place. All this you're debating about is not the essence of the kingdom. You can't get to the heart of what God wants in your life if you're consumed by distractions. An alternative temporal kingdoms. You might ask, but I thought the kingdom of God touches everything. Are we not supposed to eat and drink to the glory of God as Paul commands? Can we not seek the kingdom in how we eat and drink? Of course you can. And that's part of the point. Many of you traveled just recently during this holiday season. Some of us uh, travel quite often uh, for work or other reasons. Have you ever been so fascinated by an airport that you didn't want to get on your connecting flight? You ever walk around the airport and just love it so much and you're taking selfies and you're just like, you know, I don't, I don't even want to get home. I don't want to see my family. I'll just hang out in the airport this entire time and never want to leave. That sounds terrible. And that's what Paul is saying. The connecting airport is necessary to get you to where you're going, but you don't want to stay there. That's not the point. The point is to get home. The point is to get to your family. And so if you're so distracted, even by things that are meant to help you seek the kingdom, you're like a person hanging out in the airport for the rest of his life. And many of us can get so hung up on side issues of the faith. And even those who do not know Christ, there may be some in this room who are resisting coming to Christ because of some issue, some matter of eating or drinking or something else, and you're hung up on that side issue. What I would say to you is come to Christ. See Him. He's the destination. He's the goal. You're getting caught up about you're frustrated with the path to get there because you don't like the layover airport, but you're, you're not considering the glory of the one that you're supposed to be brought to through this. So don't be distracted by side issues. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. And I would say whole churches can get stranded in an airport by focusing on secondary issues and distractions. And then he gives a positive answer. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So this is his answer to the question. So it's not about this that we've been spending all this time debating about. It's not this issue that we've been dividing over. It's not this issue that's been causing us issues. Then what is it about, Paul? It's about righteousness, peace, and joy. 
And I would say, and this, this isn't just me saying this, this is supported by different biblical scholars, the, a way that you could read this text is to read it this way. Righteousness in the Holy Spirit, peace in the Holy Spirit, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because you can't have righteousness, you can't be righteous without the Spirit. As, as John says in 1 John, if you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. And Jesus says in John 3, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So it's a matter of righteousness, living in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. But I thought we were saved by grace. Well, of course you are. We are His workmanship, though, created in Christ Jesus for good works that He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All of us are called to live in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord, worthy of the gospel. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness. Peace in the Holy Spirit. You can't have true peace without the Spirit. The best you can get is a ceasefire if you're pursuing peace without relying on the Holy Spirit or if it's not from the Spirit. Because only the Spirit deals in Godward heart change. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If it's the fruit of the Spirit that brings peace, among all those other things, then we can't have real peace unless it is in the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in Romans 8, 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And also joy in the Holy Spirit. You can't have real joy apart from the Holy Spirit. The best you can have in terms of happiness or joy or whatever you define it, the best you can have is an attempt to numb the pain of realizing that this world has left you empty. And the way we numb that pain is through entertainment. You can't have real joy apart from the Holy Spirit. Because he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But also in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, this is what happens for the believer. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is what the kingdom is about. Righteousness, peace, and joy. So what are you doing? What is your life about? Is it about righteousness, peace, and joy? What are we as a church doing? Are we about righteousness, peace, and joy? It doesn't really matter how many people are here on a Sunday morning 
or how great the music is or how great the sermons are or how well we execute on the many different things that we'd like to do with events or whatever else, ministries. All of that doesn't really matter if we're at odds with these things that define the kingdom. Because it's a matter of righteousness, it's a matter of peace, and it's a matter of joy. The Bible obviously has many other things to say about what a church should be doing and what we ought to be as faithful members of a church. But this is the essence of the kingdom. This is what it means to be a part of it. This is the flavor of your life, ought to be the flavor of your life if you claim to be seeking the kingdom. And he says this, whoever thus or in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So that's an interesting shift, right? So so he's been speaking about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God consists in. And then he says, whoever serves Christ this way. It's like a laser focus. If you ever watch one of those movies that, de- that begins out in outer space, I guess that's somewhat redundant, in outer space, and then it zooms in like, a, like the Hubble telescope on, the, on a street and sidewalk and down to a, an individual person, that's what just happened here in this text. Talking about the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God with foundations that can't be shaken. And then he says, he who thus serves Christ. So it has immediate application to your life. It's not just theory about the kingdom of God somewhere in heaven, written on a document somewhere, like the Constitution of the U.S. or the Declaration of Independence. It's just over there. It just kind of exists. It's, It's righteousness, peace, and joy, and that's fine, and then we can get on with what we want to do. He says, he who thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. Paul doesn't want you to just view these things in the theoretical or even in a raw theological category. It must be you. It must be every day. It must be all of your life. This is the service and the kind of life that is acceptable to God. The life of righteousness, the life of peace, and the life of joy, all in the Holy Spirit. And notice, this is somewhat of an aside, but notice he says, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God. It's only in Christ that we are at all and ever going to be acceptable to God. I won't spend a lot of time here, but he also says approved by man. He could be meaning approved by other believers. Other believers see your example, your life, and they agree. They say, yes, this is the life that pleases God. But I think it probably also lends itself to the fact that we are supposed to live before unbelievers in a certain way that when they look and see our manner of life, they too say there must be a God among them because that was Israel's role. And that is how our role, just as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 4, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, and calamities. That the way Paul endured the sufferings 
both to other Christians and non-believers. They saw his manner of life and knew there was something different and unique and real about Paul. And then Paul gets even more specific. He doesn't just say you should serve Christ this way in righteousness, peace, and joy. He gives you two trajectories or two very specific ways in which you are supposed to serve Christ this way. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. As you think about the kingdom of God, and I know I've experienced this, hopefully you have too, because I think that's part of worship. When you perceive the kingdom of God and what God is doing and the the eternal nature of this grand kingdom that we exist in, there, there should be a sense of awe and being overwhelmed as you think of what, how grand and big it all is. And so when Jesus says to you, seek ye first the kingdom of God, there should be a sense of inadequacy and being overwhelmed. Like, I don't even know how to begin. How can I seek to build that thing? The Bible gives you the answer to that. And Paul gives you two very simple directives here. First, Pursue what makes for peace. And second, pursue what makes for mutual upbuilding. And that's where I get those two words, unity and discipleship. And I want those words to be flavored with this text because they probably mean something a little bit different than what you have in the categories of your mind. Pursue what makes for peace. Do you need a direction in your life? Do you need to know how you can have a a significance, an eternal legacy in glory? One that outstrips the glory and might of even the angels? Pursue what makes for peace. Pursue what makes for mutual upbuilding. You might, if you're really paying attention... You might ask this question, did Paul forget righteousness? Because he says it's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy. So we can see uh, peace being kind of in both of these, right? Pursue what makes for peace and pursue what makes for mutual upbuilding. And so joy is kind of in there. So what did he do with righteousness? Did it just leave? But you need to remember the words of the brother of our Lord. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Just a beautiful passage. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so the Bible will critique your life. And its critique is this. If you're not making peace, if you're not seeking peace, all of your claims to be about righteous living are invalidated. In this passage, these two ideas of unity and discipleship are present. And I'm submitting these to you as your pastor, that these two ideas become our flavor for this year, our main emphases this year. Not an exclusion to anything else necessarily, but that we major on these things. So why did I pick the word unity? Why shouldn't I just use the word peace? Because when we hear the word peace, especially with our political situation going on, we think of peace as, like I said earlier, just a ceasefire. 
Well, we're not killing each other, so that's peace, right? No, that's not peace. That's not real biblical peace. That's not the peace that Jesus, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, comes to bring. He comes to bring unity, harmony, and love. And this is literally all over the Bible, especially in the New Testament, this idea of unity in the body of Christ. I've preached when we came up here to interview in October, I selected passages from Philippians chapter 2 because of this very idea. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. It's also in John 17. I've mentioned this, I don't know how many times, but Jesus prays to the Father that the Father would give us the glory that Jesus had before the foundation of the world to us, and that in Him we would have unity and such unity that we would be called perfectly one and not just in heaven, but so that the world would know that God in fact has sent Jesus, that Jesus is the one come from God. That's insane. And I would argue we, we don't even have mental categories to embrace that kind of unity. That we would love each other so evidently and so obviously before the world that the world wouldn't even need us to try to convince them that they'd look and they'd say, yeah, of course your claims are true. No one can love each other like that unless there is a God among them. So where do I get this word discipleship from these verses? It's this idea of mutual upbuilding. I don't think that's a stretch. And it is a needed area of, of clarity when we discuss discipleship because most of you probably have in your mind an experience you had a long time ago or something you knew about where you sat across the table from somebody and they went through some curriculum or some Bible verse and discipled you. That is a way to disciple, but that is one of perhaps dozens Hundreds even of different ways to disciple each other. This phrase, mutual upbuilding, is really what should be in your mind. That you, as a believer, would see your brothers and sisters in Christ and know that it is your job to build them up. Regardless of how far along you feel or how behind you feel, everyone's job is to build each other up if you're in Christ. That's your mandate from God. We're not talking about a special advanced track of Christianity. We're talking about something that is basic, something that all of us are supposed to be doing. I mentioned these passages before, Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. With songs and hymns and the word and all of that is involved together to make sure that the word of Christ dwells, dwells in us together. In Hebrews 3.13, that's why we spent so long on that passage. But exhort one another 
every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And we need this, and we need to do this precisely because God has commanded it. He didn't just command us to go and make converts, to get people to make decisions. He commands us to make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And Jesus says to some Jews, this is from John 8, verses 31 through 38. If you want to turn there, I want you to see how stark this is in Jesus' understanding. John 8, verse 31. Make sure you pay attention to the first part of verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Those who had believed him. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So these Jews had believed him in some sense to a degree. They had accepted his teaching in a way in a limited way, but they weren't his disciples. How do we become his disciples? If you abide in my word, if you live in my word, if my word is for you, your very food and life, then you are truly my disciple. So with these two emphases of unity and discipleship, how shall we then live? How have we been trying to pursue these things and how do I hope we will pursue them in this coming year, this year that we're in now? So as I said, the la- last year we had three main initiatives. The priority of the Word of God, the priority of prayer, and equipping. Equipping you for the work of ministry. The reason those exist is for these very reasons. The priority of the word of God in the church is step one for righteousness, peace, or joy in the Holy Spirit. All of them together. Because this is the word that he's given us. And it's so important for unity too. Because if your unity isn't based on the word, it's a false unity. You're just getting along. It's not from Christ. It's not from the Spirit if it's not on the basis of His Word. So we've done that, making the Word of God a priority in our church in many different ways this past year, teaching through the Baptist faith and message every Sunday in this setting, the sermons, and also in teaching through and revising multiple times the new church covenant. And with prayer, we have kept an updated prayer list 
to know God and to welcome the presence of God together and to yearn for the blessing and presence of the Spirit who brings righteousness, peace, and joy. That is what prayer is for. So we have the weekly prayer meetings, and that's why we pray. We set aside a few minutes before each sermon. Sunday is basically the only time when the majority of us are here, so we set aside that time to pray together, welcoming and seeking and yearning for together God's presence and blessing. And also with equipping, equip the saints for the work of ministry. To help you do this serving, this serving of Christ, it's necessary to give us all together clear and fitting ways to pursue peace and mutual upbuilding. We've done this in many different ways. I'm not going to list them all, and there have been opportunities made available to you in every church email that's gone out, a list of needs that we have for a church And an invitation to take any of those by the horns and make them what you will and to make them better even than I can conceive. So we all need to be honest. We all need to be honest with evaluating how we did and how we can do better. How did these three things go for us as a church? Did you avail yourself of all that was available to you? or even most of the things that were available? And how can we improve? Those are important questions, and they were in the family or personal devotional that I sent out. For this year, we're going to continue in these three areas and improve them. And I'll just go through a few ways. And these are group applications, right? Hopefully, you've been listening with this exposition of Scripture that we went through from Romans And you can see how you as an individual ought to apply these things to yourself. Here are ways that we together as a church can apply them. We need to continue making the word the priority. So recently we've begun doing handouts. Not for this week, just because of how different this sermon is, but those handouts are to help Many of us pay attention and remain engaged. Started preaching shorter or limiting myself intentionally so that I don't lose half of you. But also, making the word the priority is more than just the sermon on Sunday morning. And here's how. First, with these two words that we are emphasizing, discipleship and unity, for your own self... And in your families, read the Bible to your family, fathers especially. One meal of the day, my my strong encouragement is that you would read the Bible to your family. Just a chapter a day, half a chapter a day. And yes, it's going to be wheels off the whole time. We've been doing this from before Zoe could even understand, and even now. So it's been her whole conscious life She's had that happen for her, and sometimes it's still a battle. And it's going to be. Those are opportunities for discipling your own family. And I gave this challenge last week. Meet with someone once a month, just at least once a month, or or every two weeks, just to pray and read over the Bible. 
that sanctifies our lives and shows that the Bible is a priority for us as a church, not just as an individual. And then beginning in February or late January, we're actually going to do a series on the gospel. And hopefully it'll become clear why. And this is part of making the word of God the priority in our lives uh, to remind us all what the word of God should lead us to. And that is an understanding of the gospel, what God has done in Christ. We can also make the word of God a priority through unity. And that is primarily a personal responsibility for each of you. That the unity in the word between your brothers and sisters is what God wants. He doesn't want you to just be buddies. And to be associated with each other because you have common hobbies. Or because you run in the same circles. That's not what God wants the foundation of your unity to be. He wants the foundation of your unity to be the word. Also, prayer. How can we seek unity and discipleship through prayer? One of the ways, and this is something I mentioned in one of the emails to you, is to try and create a space of time between Sunday school and the beginning of the worship service for fellowship and prayer. We're going to try this out, Lord willing, the Sunday following the 19th. I guess that would be the 26th. It's my prayer that we would do that and just try it, see how it works. Part of that is just for the leadership. Sometimes 10,000 things happen between the end of Sunday school and the beginning of the service. If you've ever tried to walk up and tell me something in between, you notice I'm a little distracted. That's because I am. But to give us a time as a church to get to know each other more. Some of us, by necessity, have to leave this room pretty quickly when this is over. Some of us get here a lot earlier than others. So if we can have a sanctified time in between Sunday school and the service for fellowship and also prayer in this room, I think that would help build unity. Obviously, that will affect Sunday school and that will call for sacrifices and hopefully we'll try it out and it'll be successful, but I'm open to your feedback on that. How do we build How do we seek discipleship, this mutual upbuilding through prayer? I know that many of you are prevented because of schedule and work to not be here on Wednesday nights when we have our gathered prayer meeting. So what I'm asking, if the Lord would be pleased to move you in this direction, to inspire you to do so, is to work together with me to host a few of the people who can't be here on Wednesdays in your home for prayer. Just laying that out there as a ideal. And if the Lord stirs in your heart to do that, if you're already one of the ones who are doing 10,000 things, maybe let someone else. But if no one rises to that, then maybe offer yourself for that goal. Now, can we seek unity and discipleship through equipping? One thing that I hope to do is just a better job of asking. I, I struggle with asking people to do things because I know how busy you all are, because I know how busy I am. And so to ask anyone to do anything feels 
difficult to me because it's like I'm, especially as your pastor, like I'm laying this on you in a sense and you, you feel like you've got to, you know. So just feel free to say no. Um, but there are so many things that need to happen here uh, for us as a church. So many things that could happen that would make what we do here on a weekly basis so much better. At least I think they would. And I know it's difficult when you receive a list, like, well, I don't know what the Lord has asked me to do. I don't know what I should give time to. So I might just ask. Feel free to say no. But I'm going to start asking and trying to lead that way and be better about equipping you for those things that you feel drawn to do. How do we uh, disciple one another in the context of equipping? One of the things I'm really excited about that's begun now and is starting is that the different Sunday school classes are going through studies right now focused on discipleship and equipping and helping us all pursue this mutual upbuilding in the adult Sunday school classes and the children's Sunday school classes but also one-to-one. And this, this is something that we'll be talking about. Hopefully it will have a tie-in every single week. But this needs to be between you and a brother and sister, brother or sister in Christ. I went to a conference recently. Some of you were there. One of the pastors speaking about discipleship said this, do something with someone. Right? You can get together and read a few verses Pray over them, and that's it. It doesn't have to be fancy, but do something with someone. I gave this challenge out last week. Pick someone and encourage them. Or ask someone to help you in a certain way. Do something with someone. And I may start asking. I might ask some of you that are maybe a little bit further along in your faith, would you go and talk to this person and encourage them? Would you start meeting with this person and read through the Bible together? Why should we do this? Because Jesus commands us to make disciples and we had better start in this room. We don't want to be a statistic. It's a wasteland, brothers and sisters, and it's worse than you realize. The people in this room are the people that need to be first and foremost on your priority list of making disciples. Now, after a message like this, um, it can feel exhausting just because of all that's out there for us to do, all that we've got to do, all that we're called to do as Christians. So we need two things. We need a fundamental or foundational why, and we need a fundamental or foundational how. For us, for Christians, the answer to both of these questions is the same. By the power of the Spirit, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by the grace of God. That's both the why and the how. And this is from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you, plural, may abound in hope. The power for these tasks comes 
by the Spirit. And that should create in you a joyful desperation and a feeling of inadequacy on your own. You can't rely on the flesh to do the things that only the Spirit can enable you to do. And think about this. We're dealing in life and death. We would see people come to Christ. We would see people repent of sin and devote themselves fully to the Lordship of Christ. That is by the Spirit. We don't personally wield that power. So the power must come from Him. The gospel is also the why and the how. The gospel changes everything and demands your whole life and your love and your service and your sacrifice because it's that great. And because when you hear it, when you understand it, you realize that it must demand all of your life and everything. Because Jesus' claims are, because I was resurrected from the dead, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And on that basis, he tells them, go make disciples. He's king. He's the resurrected Lord of lords. He put sin to death by his death on the cross. And he offers life and forgiveness and peace to all who would trust in him and submit themselves to him, repent of sin and turn to him. That's a crazy, world-changing, life-shattering message. And all this is from God. Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So he's praying that this would happen and he's asking that God would make it so. And this is why prayer must be a priority for us because we can't have righteousness, peace, and joy unless it comes by the Spirit. And the Spirit is sent by the Father. It's all from God. So today... Let's begin. Today, let's live in light of the kingdom of God and seek it together through unity, pursue the things that make for peace, and pursue the things that make for mutual upbuilding in discipleship. Let's start today by praying. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that we are incapable on our own of accomplishing these things. So I ask that by your spirit, he would work powerfully in our lives so that we would desire to pursue the things that make for peace. And that we would desire to pursue the things that make for mutual upbuilding. The discipleship and unity would be the culture of our church this year, starting this year and going on into the years that follow. Convict us of sin that prevents the pursuit of these things. Destroy the idols in our lives that prevent us from pursuing these things. Correct our minds. Change our minds in areas that prevent us from pursuing these things. Please, Lord, reconcile 
relationships so that we can pursue these things by the power of your spirit through the gospel. I pray that those in this room who do not know you in the saving power of your son would today be the day of salvation for them. In this time of prayer and reflection that they may turn to you in repentance. May those of us who do know you confess you as Lord and confess where we have failed and seek grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's his name we pray. Amen.